Good morning. The first reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, which is on page 969 of the Pew Bibles. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your, heaven in he- your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. This can be found on page 117 of your Bibles and on the screen. That's Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think it's his last letter. He's on death row, and yet his sole focus, his sole desire, is for his hearers to remember Christ, to see him, to see him in his glory, to centre their lives upon him, and to receive the grace that he gives to each and every one of us through what he did at the cross. And it's been a wonderful beginning to the letter, He gets now to the therefore question. So what should all that mean for us personally? All that Christ is and all that Christ has done, what does that mean for us in our day-to-day living? And before we dig into that, I'm going to pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, we might be made alive that you might set us on fire with love for you afresh, that you might reveal your holy ways and speak to us by your voice. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, I want to begin, before we uh, dig in, with a question for each and every one of you. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Probably not something that you've been asked for a while if you're an adult in the room. What do you want to be when you grow up? Last Sunday I had uh, lunch with a few folk from church. I can't, okay, now I can spot a few people that were there at it. And at the table was a 14-year-old boy. Uh, He was asked this question, what do you want to be when you grow up, twice during the lunch. 
once at the beginning and once towards the end. And both times, he had no idea what to say. He was hesitant, he was unsure, especially because his mother was at the table and he had to give the right answer to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Probably a question that many of us were asked as children. And perhaps our answers when we were children are very different to how life has turned out. I know it is for me. But I want to ask that afresh for each and every one of you today. What do you want to be when you grow up? And that's because this is at the heart of our passage this morning. Ruth, last week, spoke to us from the great Christ hymn of Philippians 2. This hymn of praise from the early church, proclaiming God, who is Jesus, who came for us, humbled himself to become one of us, and then was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the worst form of death. And therefore God was highly pleased to exalt him, raising him from the grave and placing him as that person with the name above all other names so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Paul straight away writes the word, therefore, therefore, what should our response be? And he says this, therefore, my dear friends, As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Our response to that great work of Christ, to who he is, is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the question, of course, is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to work out one's salvation? Well, Earlier in Paul's letters, in Romans chapter 10, he speaks of the moment when each and every one of us, if you're here as a Christian, were saved. And he says that if you were able to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you've been saved. It's that simple, that you've confessed his lordship and you've believed in your heart that confirmation of his lordship, his resurrection from the dead, that salvation hinges on his lordship proclaiming him to be Lord. Remember how the hymn of praise finished. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And Christians have chosen to say that in advance, personally. Yes, we agree. He is Lord, and we're making it personal. He is Lord of my life. I take myself off the throne, and I put him on the throne. And all my life, I'm going to seek to do that, to follow him, both as the saviour, and the gentle companion, but preeminently and ultimately as Lord and King and ruler. He is Lord. And so to work out our salvation is to come under increasing, day by day, week by week, year by year, awareness and submission to his lordship over life, over every area of life. That's what it means to work out your salvation, to take that start where you've confessed his lordship, and to make it real in your life. The theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there is not a square inch of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, this belongs to me. And as Christians, we've said that in advance, saying, yes, all of that, yes, but me. Yes, I belong to you. 
This is what it means to be a Christian. And it's an awareness today that his lordship is to be real, is to be fully in our lives. And to work out our salvation means making it so. Paul, in another letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, says to a messed up church, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. That they were still in nappies, <laughs> that they hadn't been fed solid food because they weren't ready for it. They hadn't grown up into the full realization of Christ's lordship. This is what we want to be when we grow up, under Christ's lordship. He is lord of all. For us, it will look like a number of things. I often term this in terms of three key C's. First, it will mean a changed character. We become more Christ-like in character under his lordship. Secondly, it means calling, that we come more fully into his calling for our lives. And thirdly, it means consecration, that sin is vanquished, that we work and become holy and pure in his sight. This is what it will look like when we grow up. This is what we're aiming for when we grow up. This is what we want to be. And from this passage, I'm going to give a couple of reasons as to why we should desire this, why we should look for this in our lives. And the first reason is this. We're to work out our salvations because none of us has made it yet. None of us have made it yet. No one can say that they don't need to keep working out their salvation. No one has reached the point of perfection. It's interesting, verse 12 begins, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. That they'd been set on a good trajectory. In the past, they had shown themselves to be obedient to Christ under his lordship. But Paul says, you've got to continue doing it. You're not there yet. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep working out your salvation. You haven't made it yet. Despite your great pedigree, despite all that you've accomplished in the past, there's still much to come for the future. And he's writing, of course, to the whole church there at Philippi, from converts who were in their infancy, who'd probably just been saved in the past few days and weeks, to those who'd been faithfully following Christ for decades. But he still says to each and every one of them, continue to work out your salvation. Don't give up. You're not there yet. Continue to do it. Continue to seek to make Christ as Lord over every area of your life. You're not there yet. And the truth is, each and every one of us here still has a way to go in working out our salvation. No one here, not a single person, myself included especially, has got to that place where we don't need to. Not a single one of us has fully become that Christ-like, loving disciple that he intends us to be in our character. Not one of us has fully stepped into his calling for our life. And not one of us is completely consecrated and holy to him. Not a single person here. We still have a way to go. The sad fact is that many in the church today, and especially in the past, have thought, no, actually, I've made it. I have got there, that I don't have to work at this anymore. In the uh, 
aftermath of the 18th century British evangelical revival led by the Wesleys and, the Whitfield, and George Whitfield. There was a movement that sprung up called the Wesleyan Holiness Movement. And it taught that you can have a special experience of the Holy Spirit. And once you gain that experience of the Holy Spirit, you'll be made completely and utterly holy. You're to seek it, you're to look for it, and once you have it, you're there, you've made it. It's interesting that not a single person was found to have experienced it and have made it. The proof is in the pudding. The great Victorian uh, preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, once had a man come to him who came in front of him and said, I haven't sinned for 20 years. What do you say to that preacher? And it's recorded that C.H. Spurgeon took one look at him and decided to stamp violently down on his foot. And the man cried out in anger, you fool, why did you just do that? And Spurgeon's reply was, oh yes, I've just sinned against you, but you've just broken your 20-year record. Of course, just revealing the inner sinful attitudes, actually, that were always there, even if he cleaned up his outward conduct. No one can ever claim that they've made it. Not a single person. We've all got some way to go. And this isn't to put anyone down. Some of you, because you've been following Christ faithfully for years, are completely different people. Christ has made you more loving. Christ has dealt with sins and vanquished them in your life. And Christ has called you into his purposes. You're completely different. But I just want to say this morning, there's more to go. There's even more to go. It's interesting that in the Renaissance era, in medieval times, master artists would take apprentices under their wing to learn from them. And for most artists, that would be a two- or three-year process where that apprentice flourished under their tutelage and they grew and became artists in their own right. But for master artists, it was recorded that some apprenticeships lasted decades, 20 or 30 years, that men and women who were young when they started out only got to take their place as master artists when they were old. That actually took that much time, that much input, that much tutelage to cause them to grow, to flourish, to become the best that they could be. And for us, they would suggest our working out of salvation, our tutelage under Christ, isn't a two or three year process. Not a bit. It takes a lifetime takes a lifetime until we're there, until actually we get to take our place with him, seated with him. It takes a lifetime. The key attitude that Paul is combating here in Philippi is the attitude of spiritual complacency. You see, many in this church will have known what it is to suffer for Christ. Many of them would have known what it is to do great things for Christ, And many of them would have been tempted to rest on their spiritual laurels, to take it easy. But Paul knows that that would be a very dangerous place to be. Because in Christian discipleship, there's only two directions, either forwards or backwards. No one can tread water and stand still. There's no maintaining the status quo in Christian discipleship. The onrushing current of the world and the flesh and the devil is too strong to tread water. You're either swimming against it 
and making progress forwards, or you're being swept away backwards by it. So either you're working out your salvation, or your salvation is working its way out, out of you. One or the other. It's one or the other. Paul himself, of course, is the clearest example of choosing that forward motion to work out salvation. Later in our letter, he describes his own personal testimony. He, the apostle to the Gentiles, the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen, the writer of over half the New Testament. If anyone could take it easy, it was him. If anyone had made it, it was him. And yet he says this, not that I have already been made perfect, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. He could have said to Paul, chill out, it's okay. You don't need to work this out anymore. You've got there. But no, Paul says, no, I forget what lies behind and I press on. And I think this is a call to each and every one of us today. Whatever we've done in the past, whatever we've experienced, whatever we've attained to, whatever we've learned, to forget that. To forget that you've done all that. And to consider today as the first day of knowing Christ. And to seek to come under his lordship afresh in greater and greater measure, working out your salvation. Well, that was the first point, that we're called to do this because we haven't made it yet. There's still a way to go. The second reason Paul calls us to work out our salvation is because God is at work in it. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The two words in the Greek here are the words phobos and trembos. Trembos, literally where we get our word for trembling from. And phobos, actually, where we get our phobic words from, like arachnophobia or claustrophobia, a deathly fear of spiders or closed spaces. And Paul is saying that kind of fear is the fear that you ought to have when you're working out your salvation. And of course, the question is, why? Isn't that a bit extreme? Well, the answer, as we read on, is because of who's at work as we work out our salvation. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's because God's at work inside of us, working out our salvation. You see, not a single one of us really has power to transform ourselves from the inside out. Only God can do that. And he chooses to partner with us in this. This is holy mystery that our working out of salvation is completely our responsibility and completely his responsibility. We have to choose to, and he has already chosen to do this. We know that he's committed to the you and me project. He's the one that brought salvation to us in the first place. He's the one that died on the cross to give it to you. And he's fully committed to seeing it flourish in your life to see you come more and more under Christ's lordship, to receive all the benefits of salvation that he's promised. He's fully committed to you to do this with you. And he asks the question, will you do it with him? Will you do it with him? And of course, the reason that this should lead to 
fear and trembling is because God is not like a silent business partner, partner that can be ignored in this. He's not someone that will conform to our will. We conform to his. He's not someone easily ignored. That he is the Lord of the whole universe. The ruler of the galaxies, the eternal judge of man and woman. He is so great that we couldn't possibly even begin to describe him. And that's the one that is at work in your life seeking to transform you. It's him. No wonder that should lead to fear and trembling. Someone so much greater than us that we couldn't possibly comprehend it. Someone that we're the size of an ant to, relatively, and yet he loves us. And yet that should lead to fear and trembling. In the staff team this week, we've currently been looking at the book of Acts in our devotions together. And we got to Acts chapter 5, where in that early church context, there was such a manifest presence of God that to do anything against him was dangerous. And you might know the story of Ananias and Sapphira who chose to put God to the test, chose to lie against the Holy Spirit. And there and then they dropped dead, one after another. Many of you say, I don't believe in a God like that. Surely God would not do that. And yet he is holy. He is righteous. He is Lord. He can do whatever he wishes. And we're to have a right fear and respect of him. You see, in the modern church, we often speak about God as a loving father and a compassionate saviour. And of course, that is true and that is right and that is biblical and that is never to be lost. Never, ever. But he's also the holy one, the righteous one, the one the Bible describes as a consuming fire. We don't trifle with him, we're not flippant with him and we are in a right fear of him because of who he is. This is why we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's this God who wants to partner with you in it. I think there are a couple of reasons from our text why he chooses to do this. Why would he bother with you and me to seek to this powerful, almighty God? Why would he bother with you and me to change us, to help us to work out our salvation? Well, firstly, it's because he doesn't want to leave us spiritually stunted. See, no matter how cute and cuddly a two-year-old is, and there are lots of them that we have in church at the moment, no parent really wants, in their heart of hearts, for that child to remain two years old for the rest of their life. They want them to grow up, to flourish, to become all that God intended them to be, to take their place in society. And God has the exact same heart for us. He doesn't want to leave us spiritually stunted. He wants you to grow up. He wants you to become all that you could be. He wants you to flourish and become the man and woman he's designed you to be. In increasing greater and greater measure, he wants to see that happen in your life. And the second reason is because he wants you to shine. He wants you to shine for him. Verse 15. Paul exclaims and explains the effects of working out our salvation. He says that you may become, or so that you may become, blameless and pure, 
children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. You see, the more our salvation is worked through in our lives, the more we come under Christ's lordship, the more it shines forth from them. In greater and greater measure and radiance, we shine with this word of life given to us that invites others to receive it as well. And God wants that. He wants you to shine in increasing level, in greater and greater luminosity. He wants you to shine that a world in darkness might see him, might see that precious gift of salvation that he has wrought on the cross. He wants you to shine. It's interesting that Paul, in his imagery of stars, probably didn't know this, but was using a much more apt image than he would have realized at the time. Many of you know that light from our nearest star, the sun, takes about eight minutes or so to get to us. But many of you perhaps don't know that light from the center of the sun, where it's mainly created, takes actually close to a million years to get to the surface in the first place. That over process of dispersal and internal reflections, it gradually, over millions of years, over a million years, worked its way out so that it might shine out and reach us. Paul didn't know that. But it's a great image for us that if we're going to shine, if we shine with his light, it's only because that salvation has, over the years, worked its way out of us. Over a long process, over a lifetime, spending that time coming under his lordship. And as we do, as we do, others see it. Others acknowledge it, others receive it, and others are blessed by it and long to know it as well. God wants you to shine. Oh, let me end with this. Over the past couple of weeks, I've had a workman in my house, and uh, he has been refitting my bathroom and my WC and replacing lots and lots of stuff, especially my bathtub which I found out the hard way about Portsmouth's hard water was awful (laughs) when I moved in. And wonderfully, he came in, a lovely guy, and started ripping things out and replacing them, and he did really well. He he worked hard and diligently, he replaced the bathtub, he repainted a lot of the walls, he replaced an entire WC, and everything was going really, really well, until one day, he just vanished. He completely disappeared. And he didn't come in. And he'd left the job half done. It was all usable. I could still take a shower every day, thankfully. Um, But it was unfinished. There was still paint to be put on. There was still a side panel to the bath. There was still fixtures to be put back up. And I couldn't work out where he'd gone. Eventually, after waiting for a few days, I called the company that he's part of. Where is he? I said, oh, we're really sorry, we'll send him straight back in. And the next day, actually, he came in and finished the job. He put the panel back on, he repainted the wall again with the second coat, he put all the fixtures back up, and now it is amazing. It gleams and it sparkles and it's a great joy. I no longer have to apologize to my guests for it. And as I was thinking about that this weekend and meditating, I thought, well, this is what Paul is saying here, really that for many of us, we've been working hard 
and diligently our lifetimes, seeking to come under Christ's lordship to make progress. And yet, let me just suggest, the job isn't done. It's all functional, it's all usable, you can get away with it, but it's not done. There's still more to go. There's still more that God wants to do. He wants to make you shine. He wants to make you gleam. He wants to make it perfect. He wants you to fully work out your salvation. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of salvation, that day where you called us to repent, to believe, and to make you as Lord over our lives. Many of us have known that for a long time. Many of us for short, and some of us perhaps aren't there yet. But wherever we are, we pray that we might be led on that journey of working out our salvation. We thank you that you are fully committed to us for this, And we want to say, Lord, that we want to be committed to you. Help us, grow us, change us. May you have greater lordship in our life. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. Amen. If I can invite the band back up, we're going to sing in response to these things.